0: Welcome to Ontario Lab, podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin.
1: I'm Grima Talwar Kapoor.
2: I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Sam Andrew.
0: Today, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health is stepping down. We will look back on the time and probably the most consequential CMOH in, I think, probably the last century. I think that's probably a fair assumption. How. We think about those consequences, be differing, but I think an important moment for us to reflect on. Was there a CMHO in
3: 1918? We don't know. We should look that up.
0: We should actually. I don't really know. Yeah, the century is just an arbitrary. I, you know, no actual. I was going
2: to say like it, most consequential ever because I mean, have they had medical officers of health for the province
1: for that long?
0: I'm sure there is someone in our audience who knows the answer to this and feel free to tweet at us. That is exactly the kind of factoid that I have come to expect our audience will know. We will also talk about Doug Ford's decision-making over whether and how to bring schools back and what we might expect to see this week as the science table has recommended they return, Although that doesn't appear to be an opinion shared by all members of the science table. Also, more big changes in the public service, a new secretary of cabinet in, in Michelle emmanuel I thought it would be cool to talk maybe a little bit between us about the role that the cabinet secretary plays, why this is important and what challenges we think this particular one might have, uh, particularly going into an election year and managing a pandemic. But first. While it's not Ontario news per se, I thought it would be important to talk about and reflect on the absolutely devastating, soul-chilling news out of Kamloops, where the remains of over 215 Indigenous children were found in an unmarked grave at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. These deaths were never reported by the school staff, and this story is one of many reminders we've had over this horrendous part of our country, and it has reignited discussion over whether Canada should consider its role in residential schools a genocide, and while I think this is a hard topic to engage with, I wanted to stop and maybe at least acknowledge it. I think express our shared grief on this pod, and you know maybe reflect for a little bit on the importance uh, of this moment. So, yeah, any thoughts? Any thoughts on this, Alvin? Uh, you, I think, watched. You were watching uh, Salma Makwa's uh, piece right before we started recording.
2: Yeah. So today at uh, question period, the legislature gave him. Unanimous consent to essentially comment publicly about the tragedy and. Sorry, it's an important piece, but it's hard to watch without getting emotional. He was fighting back tears the whole time. Uh, I encourage you to watch it if you have a minute. One of the most poignant things he said was that the death of our children is a crime against humanity, but Canada has never treated it as such. And it's just so shocking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, it's, a story, Sam.
3: Go ahead. it's hard to put into words. I think the grief, uh, I think just what I would say from an Ontario perspective is this isn't news right this has been this is widely known i went back and read actually the ontario response to the truth and reconciliation commission that the premier win put out in 2017 and it had a whole section on how the province was going to collaborate with with the feds on finding records of death and lost children and reviewing cemeteries and burial sites on residential school properties like and the trc documented this in detail too so it's like it's a grave reminder of how quickly we move on from these things, the relatively slow progress, all levels of governments uh, and civil society have have made in in meeting the calls to action in, in TRC. This is obviously one of 94, right? And f- very few are fully met. I think it was eight or something. So, you know, hopefully it's a wake up call, not just on that one call to action finally being met, which it seems like is inevitable, but but on the other 93 as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know how anybody who heard of that news over the past couple of days has been able to sleep soundly. I know for many of us we you know, people are talking about the fact that the last residential school in Canada closed down in 1996. I was 8 at the time. I definitely did not learn about about Canada's colonization. And it's mistreatment and murder of indigenous communities throughout schooling and even into my undergraduate degree. and I did a degree in public policy. And I think that tells you something about not only how much we have to do in the media run, but how much unlearning so many of us have to do because this has not been a part of the of of the curriculum proper. And, you know, I think about, the atrocities that have taken place over the past several centuries and then think about the atrocities that continue to take place today. We have dozens of of First Nations communities under boil water advisories. That is an absolutely abject infringement of human rights at every single level and we continue to allow it. We continue to allow our governments to ignore their responsibilities on that front. And and we go on with our lives thinking, you know, and not thinking much about it. And I, you know, I'm hopeful that that people expect better from their governments. And that they, that they understand that the governments that they expect better from are inherently colonial constructs of government on this land. And that is something that we have a lot to interrogate with and unlearn.
0: Just on that, Grima, I mean, like expect, expecting better from the government, I was truly disappointed by... prime minister's tweet on on this not that you know a tweet is action or a tweet is the sum total of the federal government's involvement in this but like called it a part of our past and it's it's not a part of our past i think every indigenous activist we've ever had here on the pod that you know i've ever talked to would call it an ongoing legacy and i thought that was a, a really disappointing way of engaging with it 1998 is not like the past at all and you know on the genocide question that has come up, you know, like, I, I'm not a scholar, I don't know how to particularly, how to parse the legalities and, you know, we we may think, but I mean, by every moral standard, this is something that I think we should consider equivalent and the way that I, I was thinking about it in terms of, you know, the the coronavirus, which we've shut down society for. the Missing Children's Project connected to TRC has identified so far over 4,100 children who died while attending residential schools. If we take the 150,000 as an estimate of the children who were taken, that's about a 3% death rate. And we shut down Canadian society for that with a disease. And I, I just, you know, if people need a in terms of like thinking about a you know how we move on with our lives it, i'm not i don't know really how to parse that but it was it was just a thing that i was thinking about with the current moment where we're so that we're so focused on and then that's part of our past that we we don't focus enough on
2: so i mean like another thing on that chris like to keep it current right i mean the reason that this isn't just part of our past is because people do not understand or know the history of it right but when you don't acknowledge it when all it is is a number when there are you know, I think what has caused people to react to this so viscerally is that it's the evidence, right? It's the physical evidence that exists in the stories of the people who were there and likely the people who are buried. And that currency, that relevance to what's happening right now, and essentially acknowledging the fact that we've ignored this as part of our history, we didn't learn about it. Maybe we did, but we didn't register it, is why we still have those things that agreement we were talking about. It's why we have ignored the problem for so long because it's such a tragic story that we've buried in the back of our collective minds. And without that currency of acknowledging what we've done as a society to these people, that's not going to change. And that's why it's important that we keep pushing on and we keep finding more and more of this information. We keep it relevant, we keep it current, and we remind people that the situation that Indigenous people face is caused by these actions. And we can't just expect them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and figure it out and join the rest of society, like immigrants or whatever else you want to compare them to and say, just figure it out already. We give you everything you want. There is a deep and lasting damage here that is generational that is going to take a very, very long time to overcome. And it starts with... Persistence in trying to uncover these stories and making it a part of our narrative.
0: Yeah, and the the one last thing I'll I'll, I'll say is that you know I think one thing that we really have to, to to reckon with, and I've seen, you know, I the easiest thing to do is to pay to pay lip service to to this. You know, I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to our episode with uh, Dr. Sherry Pasternak at Ryerson University. She talks about what kind of land particularly with land restitution needs to happen to really realize but like there's a core idea that you know canadian society has taken and there's no reconciliation until we sacrifice something and i i I see a lot of people saying this is important but i would love to see from the policy circles that listen to our podcast some more serious discussion about how do we manage a process of giving something up that we have stolen as a colonial state and not just passing the buck or saying now you know what energy projects too important like we really you know we're either taking it we need to find a way as a policy community i think to take this much more seriously and the passing of the un declaration on the rights of indigenous people in canada last week as well which is a significant milestone for how these issues are settled in Canadian law may provide an opportunity to do so. But it also provides an opportunity for governments to further drag their heels. And so it's something that I don't know, I feel like we should bring back on future episodes, maybe have a discussion about that and the process that will go into supporting that because they will impact us deeply uh, in Ontario as they will across the country. So moving us on from, I think, a very heavy discussion to to one that is uh, a little bit less so, you know, we saw, I think, a significant shift in the Ontario government last week at some of the highest levels. And so I thought it would be worth... Uh, talking amongst us, among some of what we think about some of those changes. So, maybe start with the new Secretary of Cabinet, Michelle D'Emmanuel. D'Emmanuel is currently the president of Trillium Health Partners, the health system administration body in Peel and Mississauga. She's previously been an associate secretary of cabinet and a deputy minister, where her accomplishments included the renewal of Service Ontario, a money back guarantee for government services, which I'm sure the Tories loved the branding of. But she's also held senior uh, executive positions at CIBC, Brookfield. Has degrees from Waterloo and U of T. Sam, I believe you share an alma mater with her. And so I I wonder, like, just for our audience, because secretary changes are relatively rare, can we describe briefly what the secretary does, how they intersect with cabinet, and how people should interpret it, how political or significant this appointment is with regard to how Ontario is going to be for the next little while?
1: Well, I mean, for starters, let's know that the Secretary of Cabinet is the head of the Ontario Public Service. And so it's a pretty, it's a very significant role. The SOC, the abbreviated term for Secretary of Cabinet, uh, yields a lot of power and influence, but also, you know, is not only leads the Ontario Public Service in our province, And has, you know, a whole host of ministries and deputies that that reports to that role, but also plays, you know, is the is the public service voice for the premier. And so I think, you know, as we try to navigate out of a post, you know, are we post pandemic or not? I don't know. But as we try to navigate over the next year coming out of the pandemic. I think having somebody with um, such strong credibility as Michelle DeManuel is incredibly important. And I think, you know, it's it's an appointment that has been applauded by by all people, regardless of political persuasion, and I think is reflective of Michelle's, like, extreme capacity to get to get to get results and to to listen to what political leadership has to say, to not shy away from from getting things done and from being able to advise as as fearlessly as necessary. And I think that's what Ontarians need at this time. So I'm yeah, looking forward to this change.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know Michelle personally, but I mean the reaction of those of who i trust was so universally positive that i think it sounds like it will be a great selection i yeah you know, would just echo Krima's thoughts i think they have a really important role to play at the kind of interface of the political and the civil service and and you know it's among it's probably the most important role and the the relationship between them and the premier's you know chief of staff and and political staff is really important too in navigating the civil services ability to respond to what the government needs and wants and you know speak truth to power etc it's it's you know it's really a critical role and i know stephen davidson who is who's retiring uh, was an excellent civil servant i I thought really highly of him so you know the 40 government has been served well through the pandemic i think by his leadership and it sounds like Michelle will be will be a great uh, next one
2: I don't know why I always expect the worst out of this government, (laughs) maybe because they seem to meet my expectations every time I do, but I recall another government about three years into their mandate appointing a new secretary of cabinet and taking a very different direction and appointing a partisan, which I half expected Doug to do this time around. And I'm talking about David Agnew, who was uh, the first secretary of cabinet as a political appointee in the Ray government in the 90s, about three years in and needed a bit of a recalibration. and so people rightfully were pretty upset about that appointment and how can you politicize the public service but you know the, he felt it was important to have somebody he trusted and with the announcement of you know Corey tonight and and a whole other p- slew of conservatives joining the premier's office and the campaign team I wouldn't have been surprised if he did that and and appointed one of those people but I guess he didn't so good for him for doing the right thing
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting one. I mean, clearly uh, she has, as we've all said, impeccable credentials. Uh, I think really interesting to see, you know, like both liberals, conservatives, and also former senior, like former deputy ministers coming out of the woodwork to say, this is a person who understands. I think it's interesting in that dynamic that you mentioned, Alvin this she's stepping in at probably the trickiest time for a government and the public service you know you kind of go into after an election implementation mode the public service is doing the civil the political side is leading but as you get closer to the election you need to start tying things off This the public service starts stepping back you know the asks from the political side become more political and you know we've it's, it's always this sort of dance as to sort of how like you know, political, I think it's probably fair to say any political side of any government is always going to try and push a little bit to try and get stuff done before the election. And the civil service tries to navigate an apolitical role in that. And I, I'm just curious, sounds like this person, Michelle uh, demanuel is probably set up to do that well, but curious for what you think, what we think some of the the landmines, roadblocks, things that she needs to look out for uh, would be.
1: You know, I think at this time, um, given how critical this political time is, and given how important it is to follow the science and getting out of this pandemic, I think we've seen, we've seen a tension and a conflict between those two, the politics and the science of the pandemic throughout the past year and a half. And so I think that that is going to be, you know, if there's one overarching umbrella comment, it's how do, how do we do the things that we need to do to get out of this, but also navigating the political realities of of the government. Right. And and I think that that is going to be tricky um, for any civil servant and Michelle's no different. But but I do think that, you know, given her experience at Trillium Health Partners, she does come with that credible credible voice and being able to understand at least what what the science is saying, Um, not saying that you need to have, you know, healthcare background experience to understand what the science says. But I think she she brings that credibility and so it'll be challenging to navigate at times but that's probably you know if there are hurdles to think of it's probably that. And how do you you know when it comes to things like regional reopenings over time how does that how does that interact with what we've known from the past? How does that interact with higher vaccination rates? How does this interact with all governments wanting to push forward with the reopening as quickly as possible? And so I think that that will be a challenge
3: i also think like a key role that the civil service plays when it does become like political kind of silly season close to the election is like uh resistance to cronyism like cutting checks to your friends appointing partisans that sort of thing obviously this pc government has gotten into trouble with with particularly on the appointment side in recent memory so so i think like that. You know, especially if there's like stimulus money post-pandemic, I think that would be another thing that will be tricky for her to, to navigate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this actually may be, if anything, the latest, most indication that the Ford government may be more afraid of its own shadow re-governing than they ever have been before. Like, you know, I think the appointment of someone this, this strong Indicates that they may want less of a role, not less of a role, like or uh, at least you know if they need to if if they need to have confidence that you know if they're going to focus on the election, someone that they have confidence in is handling the decision making structure, Republic Health, the things that happen in civil service, like you know, I I think it's just a really good point, Sam, that like trying to do lots of stuff before the election is also higher profile, higher risk. And I think that they may be a good sign that they're seeking at least someone who could give them good advice and potentially push back on, you know, things that we have seen them do. And, you know, they've also suffered from those things. And so I don't know that my hot take is maybe that this is an indication that they they may, you know, potentially be operating governing with a little bit less we know better than the civil service attitude than they than they did at the beginning of their term. I want to move on quickly to the other huge change, which is, of course, the appointment of a new chief medical officer of health and Dr. Kieran Moore following the announced resignation of Dr. David Williams. The Williams era is over. The conservatives put out a press release thanking Dr. Williams for his years of service and listing his many accomplishments, including becoming a leader in testing and case and contact management, advocating for and initiating the addition of school funded nurses in public health units the development and implementation of keeping ontario safe and open framework for the fall and winter and the release of the roadmap to reopen which we have talked about on this pod i looked at this list of accomplishments and i was kind of like is this the thing i want to celebrate david williams for particularly that that fall and winter reopening piece but yeah i don't know just wrote thoughts reflections and actually i think i'm most curious about is what do we think drove this timing this decision at this point
2: i i heard it was like an internal like cabinet did not you know heed or like the way he presented his advice it was very like we could do this or we could do this and it wasn't as affirmative or clear as they were expecting and in addition to him being a messenger of the message and not being the best communicator as well also did not help his standing with this government at the Why same time you know? him?
3: the extension is yeah. confused me yeah. like that because this was all known a year ago mm-hmm. right like yeah but uh, anyway clearly <laughs> they've woken up to the
0: challenges Cabinet and all of Ontario. I, I don't know if anyone's seen, if you subscribe to QB Observer, you might've heard Lucas Malinowski did an amazing impression of David Williams ordering a like a side at a restaurant. And I won't attempt to do it here, but it was something along the lines of, well, we have two kinds of potato on this on this menu. One kind of potato is like this. The other kind of potato is like this. Obviously, we need to keep both potatoes into account. Anyways, I broke my word. I just did it myself, but it was amazing. But yeah, you can see why that would be frustrating both to all of Ontario, but you can see why it'd be frustrating to people who are trying to navigate decisions as well in government.
2: I mean, no medical officer of health is hired on the uh, anticipation of having to deal with a global pandemic, right? Yes. And the communications around it. Although maybe you should think about that in the back of your head. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think
0: ample evidence that Ontario didn't think, you know, enough about pandemic management before we we were hit with one. And perhaps that is a mistake that we won't make again. Hopefully, fingers crossed.
3: Okay, um, just one last word on it. The fact that they just chose somebody. And didn't go through a process like a posting. Like, with, with, I mean, clearly who they chose is well respected. But I, I anyway, the pro, the process piece was the only thing that was she's like hmm, that's interesting.
0: Yes, and actually, Andrew Horvath was sort of saying something about that, and it was funny. She kept her comments. She expressed some protest today at the process because it is supposed to be a legislative appointment, and they just kind of picked someone, and that's yeah, that's not how it's supposed to go. But I think she is guarding her fire a little bit uh, in that. I think everyone will recognize that this is going to be a a step up in terms of like the public communications now that the, you know, we're on the, on the tail end of this. want to, before we go, talk also about what I think seems to be a true return to form in Ford governing tactics in the reopening of schools discussion. So last week, and actually sort of, I think a nice sort of sign off, Dr. Williams uh, indicated that he thought schools might be able to return in advance of the reopening framework early last week. This prompted a I think a lot lot of advice the other way, that this was not a good idea. And so the premier's office took the very interesting step of releasing a letter asking for consensus from educators and public health officials before a cabinet made this decision. The letter itself had some actually extremely interesting information in it, indicating that schools reopening could lead to a 6 to 11% increase in daily case counts, with approximately two to 4,000 cases associated with school openings by the end of July. It also highlighted that only 40% 40% of teachers and educators had been vaccinated in comparison to over 60% of the regular population. So um Can I, how do they know that? Like, it's not like
3: people's employment, like job is in the Ontario health database. When I read that, I was like, well, like, how do you know? Maybe some of the teachers <laughs> didn't go through the teacher
0: portal. Do you know what I mean? Like, anyway, yeah. sorry. That's that's I mean that's a very good question uh, very good question Sam one that if you were to want to participate in this public consultation process, you would be past your window for input because premier gave 36 hours for folks to respond to this. Uh, The science table released a letter back to the premier responding that recommended a regional reopening of schools based on the principle that schools should be the first to reopen, the last to close, Uh, but these decisions should be subject to local leadership. And, but worth noting that not all of its members agreed. Dr. David Fisman saying that with increased variants, ICU admissions are still too high. This is not the time to roll the dice. So yeah, just like this was a very interesting, we don't know what it's going to be, what the decision is going to be. Yet, but a very weird public process, a break from the past sort of style of this government. But you know, I think there's been a lot of interesting just chatter about this as a strategy. So I'm curious for you know what we think of it, both from a public policy consultation and also the politics. I thought it was
3: bizarre, to be honest. The timeline, the who was copied. I know it's a bit in the weeds, but the five unions that work in schools were copied, but no other education stakeholders, such as, you know, school board trustees, principals, parent groups, etc. Which like tells you again, this was a political calculus that they were making, which is they wanted the unions only. It was the voice that they wanted to to say that schools couldn't be open so that ford could swipe at them again when asked about it like so like the just the transparency of it that they couldn't even be bothered to get from the ministry of education the stakeholder list was ridiculous the tone of it like they've clearly convinced themselves that they can't open schools and they can't they're not going to be blamed for you know a fourth wave and they think that that's politically too risky and or it's a stalling tactic while they pull ontario to figure out if they can open schools without being blamed for it i just thought it was such an abdication of leadership of responsibility they've failed at every moment to treat keeping schools open as the priority it should be you know with ventilation and air filtration class size like a real plan for outdoor learning now that it's actually warm enough that that could be accomplished like on and on and on, like they've nickled and dimed this, and parents, I think, should be furious.
0: Yeah, there were lots of, I think, appropriately snide remarks about wait, I thought the buck stopped with you. And this is
2: clearly an attempt to, to move the buck. I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> 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 yes to all of that. I want my kids back in school. The what sick kids came out with that report last week, and how many people have said? the mental health and the social I mean, we talked about this last week too. Like it's just so important. And it seems like I want mass consensus from everybody so that I can get credit when I deserve credit and that nobody will criticize any of the decision that I have to make. I mean, like you're not gonna get that.
0: Yeah. I wanna riff on something you said, Sam, about the prioritization here. Cause so I when I heard the initial David Williams announcement, I issued one of my probably my hundredth tweet of expressing fury at Dr. Williams. And I I had a friend of mine who I respect in public health message me and say, wait, do you like not agree with kids being back? And it was a really big principle in the science table letter. And I think important, like some of the divides here and what he kind of was Reminded me of was that you know there are many many equities that are health related that have to do with schools being open and that a lot of public health officials believe that it's a priority that schools should be open, and I totally take that as you know a a, a valid viewpoint that has significant evidence points that support it. What kind of frustrates me about how this government has handled it is because you know I, I was kind of like okay well like why can't we just why would we announce it as happening before the reopening plan, but have the announcement after the reopening plan. Like if it is supposed to be part of the reopening, if it's supposed to be the centerpiece of our strategy, as I think the public health officials and the science table letter affirmed it was, why was it not mentioned at all? It just seems to be on this parallel track. and you know like we know that it's we know that schools contribute significantly to cases they're not the only ones but it's not you know but there's it's not no impact that's for sure and and yeah like we're like this we're always first to talk about like we got so granular about bingo halls strip clubs like you know all of those got like line by line treatment and like schools are like if this is supposed to be the center like i just think the science table is not actually speaking to where the government is by saying it's first principle and the first principle of reopening should be schools because that's clearly not what the government has planned.
3: And I obviously think kids should be in school, but let's not pretend that going back for three weeks in the status quo is like somehow going to fix the mental health and equity challenges and learning gaps and, you know, abuse at home that have been allowed to accumulate for the past 15 months. Like, give me a break
0: yeah yeah and i to be honest don't know exactly how i feel about this many people i respect believe that we should be bringing kids back sooner but i just don't i think my, my take is that i just don't believe that there is enough of a link between what we're doing with reopening and what's being planned for schools to make it safe and i think it seems like a bit of a roll of the dice to do it sooner but yeah if it, it, if you're it, right Sam, it's and this is a plan just, you know, right chris i mean like
2: they knew this was coming they knew they had a prioritization list of people who could have gotten vaccinated they could have done teachers, education workers first, they could have I mean, they, they could have done all of this stuff if they were thinking about this more than their next press conference at a time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, any predictions on when we're going to get an
2: announcement? Doug Ford what? says in the next day or two. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be no. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just going to not do anything. I couldn't find consensus. So we're not going to do anything. Yeah.
1: I mean, Sorry, Alvin, just to reflect on something that you've just said, I think you know, given how much vaccine supply we did have, the government chose to make decisions about how it prioritized vaccines, right? And and for whom it prioritized vaccines. And so I think, like, inherent in all of this is a discussion of trade offs that is not being discussed publicly, right? Like, why weren't teachers prioritized for vaccinations? Because Priority was given elsewhere. And that has downstream effects. And then you have to live with the consequences. I'm not saying that that I'm not saying that that was not the right decision. I actually think prioritizing workers that could not work from home is was absolutely necessary to see the decline that we've seen in the third wave. But but nobody's actually said, because we're making this decision, this is what it means for education. And this is what it means for schools. And this is going to suck. But out of all of the decisions that we have to make, this is one, and this is how we're prioritizing. And so I think it comes back to communications and it comes back to the government being able to trust the public and being able to like carry it as it goes through a decision-making process. And I think the science side of the equation is doing that right so on the expiration date for the astrazeneca vaccine like why are we you know does that matter or not or how much does it matter like all of we're all learning that in real time whereas it from a government decision making perspective that sort of dis, that sort of thinking is not being shared publicly and i i think it's to their own detriment unfortunately yeah and then i think you know are they going to say you know open schools or not i think based off of that like they're they're going to if icu and hospitalization rates are their top priority to keep low then i don't see how you do open up even on a region to region basis
0: yeah Will be interesting. I mean, you know, maybe we'll have an answer by the time folks are listening to this pod and we will, you know, you can evaluate our hot takes in, in real time. But uh, before we go today, as always, one do the rapid fire. i um, going to start today, a uh, day of recording. The Leafs are playing game seven today. Last night, there was an announcement. So, you know, listeners, you're either if you're a Leafs fan, you're either sad this morning or happy. I'm happy for you or sad for you, depending on how you're feeling. But really interesting public health. Uh, thing they uh, there was a proposal to allow healthcare workers 550 healthcare workers to go attend in person the government rejected that plan and then reversed it 12 hours later I, I don't know just what are we any takes on the leafs right now and this sort of like toing and froing about should we allow fans
2: i, I... <laughs> I mean, I can't blame the Leafs for losing because there were fans at the Bell Center in Montreal, and I feel like that is influencing some of this decision for the Premier to allow uh, people to come in and be like, oh, well, we'll just make it health care workers, of which, by the way, my wife has now entered into the lottery at SickKids to be one of <laughs> oh, those <nice>. people. <laughs> so hopefully she, I mean, she'll get to go by herself because none of us have two vaccines other than her. But, you know, and they're all going to get jerseys, which is nice from ML- MLSE's perspective, I guess. But if, like... This is something that can be reversed within 12 hours, it makes you think like, where are the principles in terms of what this government is saying is a standard and the reasons they were closed are still true. So then why can't these other things then be changed and it's just like, you know, I, I really think it was Doug Ford sitting there on Saturday night having having a couple of pops watching his Leafs lose in overtime and being like we got to change this we got to make sure we got fans. I think it's nice. I'm I'm trying not to be cynical about this. I think it's nice.
1: (laughs) Okay. Full disclosure, I'm not, I I don't think about the Leafs every day of my life, but I was watching the game with with my partner and I got a bit misty-eyed watching, you know, seeing a crowd in like real life and people like, you know, like cheering for their team. So I think on this, it's, I think it's nice and, you know, political decision making aside. And a good way to it's you know, thank our healthcare workers, the ones that get to win the lottery.
0: Occasion I I totally agree. I, I, I think in government sometimes there are these come on kind of decisions that happen. And I actually think that there is a certain this is fits into that category. There are times where the political side sort of forces a come on kind of decision just because it like the moment for this i think they recognize most people would be like this is nice if it's just healthcare workers that have been vaccinated twice that makes sense like you know i can criticize the priority of sports in our culture over many other things till the cows come home but i'm just gonna it's gonna be nice to see see folks and that is really it is important to people it is symbolic and it like means something to people and that is you know you can have the best policy framework in the world but if you know People don't have those moments and those symbols. Like there's actually limits to what politics and policy can do. So I don't know. I I I thought it was a, an, an interesting moment that you know. And we are last bit of rapid fire today is that we are almost exactly a year away from the next provincial election. And PC leader Doug Ford has shored up his campaign team with Corey tonight leading the way for another round and pollster Nick Kuvallis. Ugh. Amongst their first recommendations that insiders have acknowledged is to pull Doug Ford back and let other cabinet members take the spotlight for the government, which I think we've seen in the past couple of weeks. So I don't really think that's news. But yeah, thoughts on on campaign 2020. Twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty two. I'm twenty twenty is not over for me until I'm like out <laughs> partying with my friends, you know? <laughs> until we record Ontario Loud in person, it's twenty twenty in my head.
3: I mean, to be expected. I feel like we thought this would be the team that would probably come back together.
2: Jamie that's Byrne my... maybe will join them too.
3: Yeah, I, yeah. This is that's my hottest of takes. I,
2: I I'm not surprised. And but yeah. what about like Doug not being the face of this?
3: But, I mean, the, this is a continuation of the chat that we had a few weeks ago on this, right? Which is, you know, he was overexposed and delivering bad news. So I think it, I think it makes sense for them.
0: Totally not where they wanted to be, In going into this. I think like heading in with like, Premier Ford's leadership, if you'd asked them a year ago, they would have been like, it's Ford all the way to 2022. But but yeah, I guess I just don't think we should ever forget the many shameful tweets of Nick Cuvales, his role in raising steering Kelly Leach, the like, like he his, I like I know he's like, he cultivates this personality that is meant to provoke reactions from people like me. But like, I don't know. I think that like, I just, I will use this moment to express disappointment that he continues to somehow be a central figure in conservative politics, considering what, you know, he might be smart, but what an unstable and, you know, unafraid to flirt with a far right individual he he is. So, but I'm, I'm sad, but not surprised. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grim Tower Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andre. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Mahim Khan helps us do communications and social media. And we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy, it helps us support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or Ontario Loud at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Lab is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.